How many of you guys out there like a good debate? Got some debaters out there? Good. Because I thought maybe together, when I, when I look out and I see this many geniuses, <laughs> figure that maybe together we could solve some of the most vexing questions that have perplexed the deepest thinkers for, for centuries. And I think together with this pool of people, we can probably pull this off. So first question that I think all Christians really have to wrestle with at some point in their life is does pineapple belong on a pizza or not? Pineapple belongs on pizza? No pineapple on pizza. Pretty split. Pretty pretty split. Next question, next question. This one's very divisive, so hopefully we can keep our, our Christian conduct. Which animal makes the better pet? Dogs? Cats. Where's my dog people? Where's my cat people? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Amen. Uh, um, here, okay, next one. Do people... <laughs> this, this isn't the joke one. The joke ones were earlier. Uh, this is the serious one. Um, Do people behave the way they do because of the environment they were raised in or because of the genetic code that was passed on to them from previous generations? Nature or nurture? How many people believe that we are the way we are because of the the, the nature that we were, the, the, the environment we were raised in? Nurture people. How many people believe you are the way you are because your mom and dad? It's your fault. That's the easy one, right? I always blame it on mom and dad. Well, and that's a, that one is a little harder, right? Those first two, man, hands were shoot, shooting up and we were nudging each other. The nature nurture one's a little bit more difficult, right? Because there are pieces of both. This last weekend, um, my family traveled down to San Diego for a family reunion. And while I was there visiting with my aunts and uncles and my cousins, throughout the course of the weekend, some of them would come to me and say, oh my goodness, Jeremiah reminds me so much of you. Or I just had the nicest talk with Sierra and talking to her is just like talking to you because she has some of your same mannerisms and she talks like you do. And, and that's natural, Right? And I'm not alone in that. We have all had that conversation where people will comment how your children have similar attributes that you have. My kids have similar gestures and and mannerisms and phrases and Jer got my eyebrows. I mean, there are, there are certain, they are sweet eyebrows, huh? Huh? Soak it in. Um, the, um, in all seriousness, when my cousins saw my children, they saw part of me. They, they really did. And that's natural. That's understandable. Why do all my kids love the Atlanta Braves? Because they're Christians and we, we raise them right. They, it's, it is natural. It is a natural thing that when People see children, they naturally go up the chain and they see certain attributes of their parents. 
And that's a, a common occurrence, not just in a secular sense, but that really truly is the, the core message of our text today. God wants us to reflect his nature to the world. Just like our physical children are a manifestation of their parents, so too are spiritual sons and daughters to be a reflection of their heavenly father. He, God has an expectation that when people see his kids, they will see his divine attributes. And the key attribute that John focuses on in the text is the love of God. And if you've been part of this series for the past few weeks, you will notice that love is a repeated theme that comes up over and over and over again. So as we unpack our text today, we will see why John continues to bang that gong on the importance of love, both theologically and practically. Because I believe our capacity to love is both an expression of our new nature as God's children and it's a result of being nurtured by a loving father. And whenever we talk about love, I think it is really, really important to get the phone. Because if you don't get the phone, it's going to ring the whole time. So when we begin talking about love, we have to identify what we're talking about. Because we use the word love in such a wide variety of ways, don't we? I use the same word to describe how I feel about ice cream as I do to describe how I feel about my wife. I love both very much. <laughs> but the word love is used in such a wide range of ways, I fear that sometimes it's been diluted. It's been watered down. Even the phrase God loves you, sadly, I think, has been watered down. When it is said so much and when it is said so often, it can become trite. It can become cliche. It can become like the proverbial roadway sign that you just don't see. It's there, but it hasn't changed. And you see it so much, you just kind of ignore it. The love of God is so important that we understand. To realize the depth of God's love, to receive it as true, is both life-giving and life-altering. Because the same person that spoke the whole world into existence is the same person who knit you together in your mother's womb. The same person who with the word spoke the entire universe into place and who measured it out like this. The scriptures tell us that God measured out the heavens by the span of his hand. It's this big to him. Have you seen those images from the new fancy telescope that's replaced Hubble? We are going deeper and deeper into the universe and we're so thrilled about that. And God's like, yep, that big. That's the same person who loves you personally. Intimately. Friends, the love of God is not trite. It is not cliche. It is not trendy. It's not wishful thinking. The love of God is a fundamental truth upon which the entire message of the gospel of the Bible rests. That's why John is so careful to point out what kind of love he's talking about and exactly where this kind of love comes from. Verse 7, where we start. Dear friends, an intimate term, a term that shows how much he loved the friends that he was speaking to. He was speaking to other Christians. He was speaking to you and I. He says, let us love one another for love comes from God. 
Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. John has told his readers, he has told his audience several times, I think 13 times, he's used the phrase, love one another. But this is the first time that he actually tells us where love comes from. He says love begins with God. Love comes from God. God is the source of love, the very essence of love. But it can't stop there. It has to trickle down from him to us. Love starts with God, but it's got to end with us. We have to continue to be that manifestation of God's love. I like to think of it the same way I would think of the headwaters of a river. The headwaters are the source of the river that flows down. God is the source of love that flows down from him to us to others. It starts with him, but it's got to end with us because love comes from God. He says everyone who loves has been born of God. Such an important phrase. To be born of God, to be born again, to become one of his children is such an important concept. Because that's where we get this genetic code, this this DNA, this likeness between father and son or father and daughter. Our author is the same guy that wrote the gospel of John. So we see themes obviously repeated in both. It's the same author, the same passion, the same desire to communicate the importance of God's love. And in John chapter 1, this is how John says it. Same thing in a different way. He says, to all who received him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, but born of God. What is John telling us? He's telling us that when we exercise faith, when we respond to the love of God, we become his children. We become born of God. And I hear people say all the time, maybe you've heard it said as well, and I'm not trying to be mean because I think I know what people are trying to say. But I've heard this phrase very often. We're all God's children. No, we're not. No, we're not. Not every person born is God's child. Every person born, every person on this planet is deeply loved by God. Every person born bears God's image. But not every person is God's child. We become children of God through faith, through believing in him, by responding to this unbelievable act of love. At that point, is when we receive a new nature. We receive a a new heart, so to speak, where now God's DNA, his genetic code, his traits ought to be now passed down from him through us to others. People ought to see God when they see us. When we become God's children, we now have both the ability and the responsibility to act like our dad. If love comes from God, if he is the source, and we are called to love one another, we're called to love because that is the essential family trait passed down by our father. Just like your family has essential traits that get passed down. Maybe it's your red hair. Maybe it's your blue eyes. Maybe it's your hitchhiker's thumb. Or maybe it's your expressive eyebrows. The essential trait that is supposed to be passed down in a spiritual sense is The essence of love. 
Biblical love has its origin in God, which makes it pure, which makes it holy and good. Divine love is not a response to something. It's a response to someone. It is a response to the living God that dwells within us and changes us from the inside out. That is so important as our nature changes from the inside, it manifests itself outwardly. What does our cultural love do? Our cultural love imposes its ideas from the outside in. Twitter and Hollywood and um, novels, they, they, they tell us what love looks like and they impose its value on us from the outside in. That's not what divine love looks like. It ought to come from the inside out because of our new nature that comes from being born again. But the love of God is not merely an expression of how God feels about us. Love often can be a feeling word, but that's not the kind of love we're talking about. God's love is an expression of his very nature. Two times in the text it says God is love, and we can't miss that. It doesn't say God is loving, although he is. It doesn't say that in the text. It says God is love. Love. To be loving is a characteristic. To be love is a statement about God's character. It's a statement about who he is, not merely what he's like. It reminds me of Lightning McQueen. Remember Lightning McQueen when he's trying to hype himself up before the big race and he gets in the zone? What does he say to himself? Speed. I am speed. Oh, I'm not quick. I'm not fast. What does he say? I am speed. I want to be identified by that one essential attribute. That was the essence of who he is. God is love is an expression of who he is, not merely what he is like. The love of God is not simply an expression of how he feels toward us. It's an expression of his very nature. It's the same as the sun. The sun has no other option besides emitting light and heat. Just like the sun emits light and heat, so too does love radiate, emit from God's very nature. And his love is at the core of everything he does. Every decision he makes is filtered through his divine love, his essence. When he creates, he does it in love. When he disciplines, he does it through the filter of his love. Every decision God makes, whether we understand it or not, is filtered, it is funneled through his essential attribute of love. That's where love starts. But friends, it must end with you and I. So what does that look like? If God is the source, if God is the origin, and you and I are supposed to embody that very essence of love, how is it that you and I are supposed to live our lives in such a way that when people see us, they say, ah, he or she is a chip off the old block. How do we do it? Well, the preeminent expression of God's love is seen in Jesus. You see, God just didn't sit up in heaven after creating the world and and creating people. He didn't just sit up there and look down at us and go, oh, they're so cute. They're adorable. I love them. They're so great. I'm just going to chill. I'm just going to sit up here and just feel affection toward them. 
See, God didn't act that way. Because the love of God is not merely an emotion. The love of God is his very essence. And his love is manifest by his actions, not his emotions. Verse 9. Verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. John gets real specific. He's helping us out. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so we might live through him. He gave us a model. He gave us an example to show us that love is not merely an emotion. Love is not merely a sentiment, but love is always demonstrated. God sent his son to show us his love. And this is an action item for you and I to take away. How are we demonstrating love? If I'm supposed to look like my dad, am I merely talking a good game? Am I merely acting or or, or, uh, suggesting that I love my neighbor? Am I waving and saying, God loves you, and then just going into my home and doing nothing about it? The book of James says that faith without works is dead. I would argue Professions to love your neighbor without demonstration is also dead. Because love is an action word. Love is not just some abstract philosophical concept that philosophers and poets are supposed to wrestle with. Love is not a sappy emotion that the Hallmark Channel tries to put on the screen for us to understand what love really looks like. Love is not a feeling that comes to us Rather, it is an action that comes from us. And we must choose to love. We must choose to love in the same way the father chose to send his son as a demonstration of his very nature. And when we choose to love, sometimes that comes at a cost, doesn't it? Sometimes it's hard to love people. We know how easy it is to love people that are fun to be around. We know how easy it is to love people that reciprocate that love to us. But man, it's really difficult to love someone who doesn't reciprocate. Or worse, to love someone who's hurt us. To love someone who's wounded us. But when we love that way, I believe it's one of the um, essential proofs that shows us that the love of God is truly at work in us. Love must demonstrate And one of my favorite examples of this really does come from Jesus. Right before he was arrested and crucified, Jesus was hanging out with his 12 best friends. And although he was the highest ranking person in the room, he did the job that was reserved for the lowest ranking person. He got down on his hands and knees and he washed his disciples' feet. The text even says that Jesus was about to demonstrate the depth of his love. So he took a wash basin and a towel and he washed the disciples' feet. It's a hard job. He demonstrated his love. There were 12 men in that room and Jesus washed all of their feet. Don't forget, there were two guys in there that were probably really hard for Jesus to love. He had Peter in there who was about to deny that he even knew Jesus. Judas was in there who was about to sell him out. Jesus did the hard thing because love shows itself. Love demonstrates itself. Love says, I will love you even when it's difficult. 
I will do whatever is necessary to meet your needs and to show you demonstrably what my love actually looks like. I will serve you even if it's hard because love is also sacrificial. Verse 10 has a really, really important theological concept that we've got to stop and and look at. Verse 10, this is love. Once again, John is really trying to help us understand, to grasp, to define what love really is and what it looks like. This is love. Not that we loved God. That's easy. Don't get too excited about your capacity to love God because he's awesome. He's never hurt you. He's never abandoned you. He's never lied to you. That's not really the essence of love because that's easy. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you're reading along in your Bible, you might see a nice little $10 seminary word in there. Your Bible might not say atoning sacrifice. It might say propitiation. What is propitiation? What is an atoning sacrifice? Well, propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath. This verse tells us that God sent his son so that he could satisfy his own wrath. Something had to be done about our human condition. Something had to be done about sin and God's wrath had to be poured out. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a second, this guy is a walking contradiction. How in the world can he say God's essential attribute is love and then sit over here and talk about wrath? Wrath bad, love good. How can both of those things exist at the same time? Well, let me tell you something. Your wrath is bad and my wrath is bad. But we don't look at love and wrath as if they are on two opposite poles. Let me blow your mind for a second. Let me tell you how amazing God is. God is so amazing, he figured out a way to exercise his wrath in a loving way. Remember, every decision he makes is filtered through, is funneled through his love. What did he do? He said, I hate sin so much. I'm going to actually put a price tag on sin. The price tag for sin is death. I hate sin so much that the only thing that could satisfy me and make it right is death. And then God said, but because I love my children so much, I am going to provide a covering. I am going to provide a means through which I can exercise my justice and I can pour out my wrath so I can be consistent. But I'm going to do it in a way that will protect everyone who exercises faith in me. We sang about verse 10 in probably three of the the songs this morning. We sang lyrics like, um, by his grace, I'll stand forgiven when all is said and done. That's propitiation. In his name, I've been forgiven. In his name, the battle's won. That's atoning sacrifice. The wonder of his favor, the power of his blood. That's verse 10. God sent his son as a demonstration of his sacrificial love in order to provide a covering for you and I to have a life-giving, life-changing relationship with him. 
Verse 10 is so important that we recognize that rather than punishing you and me for our sin, God sent his son to die so that he could satisfy God's wrath. Love sacrifices. Love cost Jesus his life and it saved ours. You and I were not saved from our sin because God is loving. We were saved because Jesus died. When I was at Willamette, I was always thinking of ways to try to communicate what I just communicated to you. I would imagine the absolute vast majority of you sitting in this room are children of God. And I just shared the gospel with you. I just shared the gospel with you. God created you. He loves you. But because of sin, we had an injury to our relationship. And God sent his son to provide a way that through faith you could have. I, I just shared the gospel with you. But I was at Willamette. I needed to think of ways to share the gospel with them. And because it was an academic institution, I would try to do academic things to help them come to grips and to understand the profundity of that message. So I would hold formal debates. In a formal setting, I would get two experts up on a panel and they would talk back and forth and I, I loved doing them. One day, I was putting up table tents in the cafeteria to promote a debate. And as I was putting the table tent on the table, I heard from behind me, you ever seen God? And so I turned around and I said, oh, I assume that you're talking to me. And it was one of the chefs, it was one of the cooks. And he said, well, yeah, I mean, you're expecting me to, to believe in something that I've never seen. And I was just wondering if maybe you had some more information than I did, because I'm not going to believe in something that I haven't seen. And I said, well, you know, that's a really good question. I've never seen God in the way I see you eating that cheeseburger. But you and I aren't really that different because we both believe in things that we've never seen based on evidence. Because I would bet you've never seen your brain. I would bet you've never seen your heart or your lungs. But you've got very good evidence that would lead you to believe that you are able to think and that you've got blood coursing through your veins and that you can breathe. And just like you, I've got really, really strong evidence that would lead me to believe that there's a God exists because of the experience that I have. I think you should come to the debate tonight. You see, people have been looking for signs for since the dawn of time. No one has ever seen God. The text tells us that. Nobody has ever seen God. But these next few verses we're going to look at, I believe, are some of the most compelling verses that give you and me a job to do. We get to help people see the unseen God. Look at what these verses say. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. My friend had a fair question. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us or his love is made manifest in us. How cool is that? This is the, the multiple times John has repeated this phrase. And the reason why John keeps saying it so much is because he was repeating Jesus. John was there the day Jesus looked at his disciples and said, hey, fellas, I'm about out of here. I've been hanging out with you for three years. I've been coaching you up, but I'm going to leave. And I want one thing 
to be the distinguishing mark that you're my followers. I want people to look at you from afar and be able to determine that you're Christians, that you're my followers, based on one thing. Remember what it was? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. By how often you go to church. No, no, no. No, it was by how much you tithe. It was by how fancy your Bible is, right? Gold plating, you are in. Name on the front, you get five seats closer to me in heaven, right? No, Jesus very clearly said, fellas, by this shall all men know that you're my followers by the way you love one another. John was there that day. And that's why he keeps repeating it. Because you and I have an opportunity to make the unseen God seen by the way we express his divine unseen attributes. This is a command, my friend. It's not a suggestion. There's an expectation of love that when we love like God, we show the world what he is like. When we love others sacrificially, when we demonstrate our love in tangible ways, God's unseen attributes are put on display so the world can see what he's like. That's exactly what Jesus did for his father. He regularly said, hey, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. I do nothing on my own initiative, but only that which the father has sent me to do. And now we, as Christ followers, get the exact same opportunity to show the world what God is like. Not only is that an incredible opportunity, but it's also a pretty big responsibility. It's a high expectation that he puts on us. But we have the privilege of pointing people to a loving God. And that expectation, friends, doesn't come without preparation. Remember, Jesus took three years to show his disciples how to love like him. It took him three years of saying, watch, I am going to, un- I'm going to love unlovable people. Hey, leper, I know everyone else is hucking rocks at you, but I'm going to hug you. Hey, prostitute, I know everyone else has shunned you, but I'm going to move toward you relationally. Hey, children, I know everyone is shooing you away from the great teacher, but I'm going to say, no, come to me. Jesus took three years to nurture his disciples. And this is where that other half of the nature nurture uh, combo comes into play. The new nature comes through faith. The new nature comes when we are born of God. The nurture comes by staying close to Jesus. It's called discipleship. Jesus had to teach and had to show his disciples what it looked like to love. What it looked like to have regular time of prayer with his father. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Pray like this. Discipleship is so important. And you're here today because you recognize how important it is to be taught by God's word. It's the reason why you're in community groups and home groups. And maybe you have an accountability partner. Discipleship is so important for the body of Christ so that we can help one another love like God loves. So that we can help display God's divine unseen attributes to a world that is in desperate need of hope. And one of the greatest tools of the enemy is to tell people that they are inadequate to receive God's love. The greatest tool of the enemy is to lie to people and say, Christian, your sin has disqualified you from ministry. What you did was too gross. You could never be a Bible study leader. 
The enemy tells the unbeliever that their sin is so egregious that God can't even forgive it in the first place. The enemy lies and tells you, don't believe in this pursuing love of God thing. Rather, you should be afraid of the punishment that you deserve. The reason why we see people leaving the church after moral failure is frankly because they're afraid of the condemnation they're going to receive from their friends or frankly from God. They've misunderstood this concept. That's the enemy's greatest tool. That's why these last couple of verses are so important because they push against the lie of the enemy and they tell us what is true and what is so life altering about responding to and receiving and living under this amazing love of God. Verse 17. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What's John trying to tell us? He wants us to have complete assurance that God's love is enough. Because God's love is greater than our sin. God's love is greater than our doubts. And God's love should call us out of the shadows of shame into the glorious light of his grace. Friends, there is assurance in love because love drives out fear. What do most of us do when we're afraid? We cover up, right? That scary part in the movie, the hand comes up, the pillow goes in front of our face. Fear causes us to, to, to tense up, to cover up because fear has to do with, with punishment or pain. That's a natural reaction to try to cover up when we're afraid. It's a natural reaction to remove ourselves from people because shame always drives people to the shadows. God's love calls people out of the shadows into the light of his healing grace and his mercy. Think about what Adam and Eve did right after sin entered the world. What was the first thing Adam and Eve did after sin entered the world? They jumped in the bushes, didn't they? They jumped in the bushes and they tried to hide from God. And when God tried to, to smoke them out and he's like, hey guys, where are you? I totally know where you are, but I kind of want you just to admit it. What did Adam say? I hid because I was afraid and because I was ashamed. How did he get there? Because the enemy lied to them about God's nature. The enemy lied to them. And when shame entered, they hid and they broke relationship. They moved away from God. And when God showed up, he said, you guys, get out of the bushes. And by the way, the covering that you made for yourself, the, the, the clothes you made out of those branches and leaves, they're totally inadequate. Let me cover your sin. And he kills an animal and he covers them. That's a foreshadowing of propitiation. That's a foreshadowing of God saying, I will provide the sacrifice. Quit trying to cover up your shame and your guilt. It's not going to be good enough. It will always be inadequate. Get out of the bushes and come to me and I will take care of your sin and I will restore you. Friends, we got to get out of the bushes. Quit believing the lie. Quit allowing fear to keep you in bondage because your chains are gone. Your debt has been paid. The cross has overthrown the grave. We sang that song. 
friends, the enemy is going to lie to you and he's going to say, be afraid of punishment. And the scripture says, it's been taken care of. Come out of the bushes. There's healing. There's restoration. There's forgiveness in my presence. So fear not. Love drives out fear. And God's love brings freedom. Fear will always tell you you're in trouble. Love will tell you you're forgiven. When we accept the love of the Father, and when we see ourselves as he does, it also gives us freedom to love others that are difficult. To live freely is to live without fear. And to live without fear means that we have been changed from the inside out by the love of the Father. And when we've been changed by the love of God, we begin to show the world what he is really like. When Jesus was finished washing the disciples' feet, he stood up and he said something so important. And I'm going to end with these words. Jesus looked at his friends and he said, you guys, I just gave you an example of what you ought to do. Now go and do likewise. I don't think Jesus was telling them to wash feet. I think Jesus was telling them, demonstrate your love. Sacrificially love people to the very end because love gets low. And love does whatever is necessary to say, I'm going to meet your needs even if it comes at my own expense. That's a powerful thing because the power of God's love enables us to make the reality of God visible to others. And I say, church, let's go and do likewise.